Good morning. This is John DeFalb from John Sandow's Bookshop in London. Today, I have with me on Zoom the historian Edward Wilson Lee. Good morning. Welcome, Edward. He is the author of two remarkable earlier books, Shakespeare in Swahili Land, which looks at the surprising influence of Shakespeare in East Africa, and the catalogue of shipwreck books, an account of the universal library that Christopher Columbus's illegitimate son attempted to put together. His new book is called A History of Water, with the subtitle An Account of a Murder, an Epic, and Two Visions of Global History. And I just want to turn to a passage in the introduction where you refer to, uh, for a brief moment, it may have seemed as if all the world would flow together. The history of this period is also the history of a moment when it might have been otherwise, when we might have become global, but didn't. And it presents us with a mystery as to why this is so. That will come to figure as we speak. But first, let's just consider, the book turns about the parallel lives of two men. But before meeting them, let's think about 16th century Portugal so that we can put them in some context. Edward, talk to us a bit about the background. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on, Johnny. Um, so this is a story about the moment that Europe came face to face with a much broader world. And of course, in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, Portugal was, was very much at the forefront of that. Um, later superseded, by Spain and, and, and Britain and, and various other um, global powers. But in the 16th century, in the 15th and 16th century, it was Portugal that was pushing forward um, Europe's knowledge by sailing down the, the west coast of Africa and around to, to, to India and on to China and Japan um, and across to, to Brazil. And uh, so, you know, one of the things that this story is about is about that shock of the new uh, about that moment of encounter and how various people reacted to these uh, unimaginable things uh, to encountering cultures who thought of the world in extraordinarily different ways uh, from the ways that Europeans had been used to thinking of the world. Um, and as you say, there are lots of uh, different elements of the book, but one of the things that I was interested in uh, in, in writing the book was this, this mystery of how, to a certain extent, many of these places still remain fairly unfamiliar to us, that uh, five centuries after these voyages of exploration, the cultures of uh, West Africa um, and uh, India and China and Japan uh, are still um, foreign to us, uh, which in some senses seems like a... Uh, you know, a, a no-brainer. But in, in other ways, uh, keeping things at that kind of distance for, for five centuries uh, doesn't, it wasn't necessarily kind of how things had to be. And it, it seemed like a story very much for this moment because we're experiencing another moment of extraordinarily, uh, you know, extraordinary rise in, in connectivity. Suddenly we, you know, like this Zoom call here, we have access to the entire world at once. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet there are 
forces and, and, and apparatuses that drive us often to simply seek out the intensely familiar and, and, and similar and to conceive ideas of what is similar to us uh, and, and to rest within that. And so I think this is you know, about a similar moment at the beginning of the 16th century when there was a, a lurch forward in some senses in, in, in globalism. Uh, in global access, but one which didn't turn into the kind of globalism that it might have. You, as an example of the range that you mentioned, in the, early on, you give us a list here. In between, there was a Portuguese presence throughout South, South Asia and the shores of Africa in Macau, Siam, Malacca, Bengal, Coromandel, Gujarat, Persia, Hormuz, Ethiopia, the Swahili coast, Madagascar, Mozambique, the Cape, Benin, the Maghreb, as well as Cape Verde, Canary, Madeira, and the Azores. I mean, it's incredible to think of the range that Portugal had at that moment, and it's worth bearing in mind. And you picking up on you saying that that it's often easier to to stick within the range of what you know. It's those two parallel narratives that you open up through these two men. So um, and we should note also that I think it's worth just registering 1492, we've got um, Columbus in America, of course, and the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, which sort of becomes relevant. Um, so the first man, um, forgive my pronunciation, Damiao de Gois, mm -hmm. um, who was he? So... Uh, as you say, this this is in some ways the parallel story uh, of two people, um, uh, uh, Luis de Camões, uh, who is the Portuguese national poet, and it was a name that might be familiar to some, and and the other man who's uh, Damiao de Goix, uh, who is much less famous, uh, almost almost unknown outside of Portugal. He's quite uh, has a, a certain amount of fame within Portugal. Uh, and and he, um, whilst um, Camões, the other character is, uh, you know, an epic poet and, and a world traveller, Damiao was an archivist, which seems in some ways like a, an unlikely hero uh, for an adventure story. But of course, uh, Damiao was um, the, the Gardamor, the, the, the chief archivist um, for the kings of Portugal. And so it was through his hands that all of these reports uh, about the world uh, flowed, you know, to his hands that they flowed, and 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 he who was, in part, responsible for deciding, uh, you know, how they what what happened to them when they got back to Europe. Uh, he was a great uh, historian, and and himself was engaged in writing a history of this this moment of encounter, and so part of what. The, the book does is trace the decisions that he made in in how to to um depict this moment and what in his life might have led to the very different choices for how he thought about the world to how many others of the time thought about it so he was in a sense his job was being the gateway of the opening world is a it, it sounds a lowly job but it actually, by the sounds of it, is extremely significant what he's doing. He's the, he's the gateway of information, of all that information that's coming in. And it's through him that other people learn, because I th think you say that that information is highly secret. 
Yes, yeah, so there's, uh, you know, th there's an awful lot of um, concern that Portugal's ability to um, to lead the world in establishing trade routes um, and dominating the kind of mercantile ventures that were increasingly seen to be the route of power would be compromised if other people had this this information. So uh, there, there is a phenomenon which is widely debated in, in the academic world, but which has been known as the conspiracy of silence. Um, uh, it, which essentially was a, a desire to keep cartographic data, but also ethnographic data, data about other places and other peoples uh, as, as privileged information, uh, so as not to allow other countries uh, a head start uh, in attempting to establish these, uh, you know, these trade relationships and eventually um, imperial relationships or imperial relationships of, of domination. So yes, despite the fact that the Torre del Tombo archive, which uh, Damiao uh, was in in charge of. It was a rather ramshackle affair, you know. It was it's a tower uh, in one of the, the the royal residences in Lisbon. Anyone who's ever been to Lisbon, the the, the Castelo San Jorge is still there, um, crowning one of the top of Lisbon's hills. And it's in you know in a rather rundown tower. It was rundown even at the time, um, you know. So part of this is a story about how uh, to maintain a paper archive some of the greatest kind of secrets and treasures of the world uh, essentially mouldering in a in a musty tower uh, in in, um, in in Lisbon and thinking about how you organize all this information about the world. So in some ways, this is a it's a continuation of my my last book, which was a story about Christopher Columbus's bastard son and his attempts in the age of print to build a universal library. And what you do when the amount of information available suddenly exponentially rises because of the, 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 um, the birth of print. Uh, similarly here, we're dealing with uh, a Europe whose archives are suddenly exploding with global information. And this is not just a question of, uh, of the quantity of information, um, although it is that, but also the quality of information, uh, information, uh, you know, that is not simply information about um, you know, taxes and land rights that um, uh, uh, archives would be used to, to handling, but information about all sorts of things from across the world. And what exactly one does with this information when it gets back to Europe, how you use it, who to, you know, who to, to, to give it out to, um, what opportunities it represents, what dangers it represents. Um, yeah. And what um, is Damiao's attitude to this information that's going through his hands and head. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I fell in love with Damiel is he's a rather magpie-like figure uh, in that he's he's utterly entranced by, uh, you know, the glittering variety of the world. And his life as an archivist actually only starts in, you know, in the second half of his life. He spends this, this rather extraordinary youth uh, traveling around Europe as a, a factor, a kind of, um, you know, a jack of all trades for the, for the Portuguese government living in Antwerp and, and visiting Poland and Lithuania and Russia and perhaps even Scandinavia and, and getting into all sorts of things. And, and um, you know, he... he um, he's a sort of extraordinary polymathic figure, right? So he's a fanboy of the great composer of the day, Josquin uh, Dupre. Um, he is one of the early collectors of uh, the works of Hieronymus Bosch. Um, he's a great um, 
idolater of, of, of Erasmus, who's the great celebrity of the age. And he, in fact, lives with Erasmus in his in his dying months. Um, you know, he's present at all these events and he's uh, he's like a sponge absor- absorbing it all. And, and in some ways, he's rather charmingly, um, you know, charming, naive about things. He believes stories that he hears that, you know, now seem to us utterly ridiculous. Uh, but at the time, we have to remember that there was all sorts of information flowing in from across the world that would have seemed equally absurd and, and surprising to them about uh, particular kinds of animals and geographical features and plants and peoples and how they lived their lives and how they thought about the world and about animals and and and, um, and about the cosmos and things. And so actually the things that Danielle uh, absorbs about mermen um, and about um, ancient Phoenician settlements in the Azores and things like that. Uh, these are would not necessarily have been obviously less credible than many of the things which nowadays we we uh, you know would would accept without blinking eyelid. So he's he's this kind of glitter, you know, magpie for for all of the variety of the world. Um, and and when he comes back to the the archive, uh, he. You know, it, it, this leaves him prepared, I think, to see in the archive things that other people didn't see. You, you mentioned the mermen, which, of course, is it's fascinating and sort of hilarious in a way, but also it's, it's deeply charming because the, the sense that he is interested in them. He, uh, so he, they're a real thing for him and he, and he writes about them. Uh, you also mentioned a couple of things that you referred to, the, the um, music and also the Bosch. In both cases, uh, uh, you, again, you say he's naive. What, tell us why he's naive in relation to both music and Bosch there. Yeah, so I think, you know, there are two, I suppose, contending impulses here, um, one of which is to to wall oneself off within a certain kind of certainty uh, about the world. And the other is to, to trouble the boundaries of that certainty, right, um, to um, think about, so as with the mermen, uh, think about not how one might restrict the notion of what is a person or, or what one might have sympathy with, what one might feel a kind of connection to, but instead to kind of open that, just to think, um, you know, is there, are there things um, that don't necessarily look like you or, uh, or or act in the same way as you, and yet somehow might be like you in some ways? And, and obviously, Danielle feels this um, for the moment. And I think to a certain extent, you know, there's a lot of debate about what the, the extraordinary mysteries of Bosch's paintings are, um, you know, that whether these are kind of alchemical mysteries or mysteries of, of, of some kind of secret religious um, uh, cabal or, or something like that. But I think one can't escape looking at um, Bosch's uh, images, and I'm sure that this is, whether or not this is what Bosch meant, I'm sure this is to a certain extent what, what Danielle saw, a kind of fascination uh, with the boundaries of things, of animals that are kind of part object, or people that are part animal, or people that are part house, um, you know, and just um, many of these paintings, which are actually just, you know, within a tradition of 
um, the, you know, the temptations of St. Anthony or, or hellscapes actually produce rather charming images of, um, of, of new things. And I think this is one of the things that Damiao um, was so open to. And I think this, he's representative of, of a broader moment of openness at the beginning of the 16th century during these encounters where there was a small but not insignificant group of people who really were very interested in everything that they were seeing in the world. And that, uh, you know, part of the story is, is how that didn't become uh, the, the mainstream of European history. But in, in both cases, that there's a danger for him that Bosch is Northern European and um, Damiao is from most emphatically Catholic South. And similarly with the music, uh, he he's in, in espousing polyphony. It seems an arcane distinction, but you make the point uh, fascinatingly that, that this represents from a, a, a point of religious orthodoxy, a departure. So he, he's dabbling in in what he shouldn't dabble in, even at a relatively, arguably, in a, at a relatively young age. There's a lovely thing that you uh, mentioned, uh, bringing together Laps and Ethiopians. Will you just, before we leave Damio for a moment, will you just mention that because it's so delightful? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Damio, during his, his useful travels, um, meets... Um, a vast number of people, some of them before, actually before he leaves Lisbon. So again, Lisbon is this extraordinarily cosmopolitan place. Um, certainly, um, you know, in some ways, in a, in a sad way, um, awash with the slaves that would come to, to later be part of the, um, you know, the, 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 the European slave trade, but also um, non-enslaved non visitors from all over the world, from India, from China, from Japan, from West Africa, from, from East Africa. Um, and uh, Damiel becomes fascinated with, with many of the different cultures that he, he meets. And, and uh, during one of his useful travels um, to uh, Gdansk, which is, is now in, in uh, Poland, also known as Danzig, he meets the exiled um, leaders of the Swedish church, uh, the, the brothers um, Magnus, uh, Olaf and Johannes Magnus. And they and he hears from them. They, they are in the process of writing the first kind of extensive history of Scandinavian culture, pre-Christian Scandinavian culture, all of the kind of runic and uh, uh, and uh, Norse culture that, that is so unfamiliar to Europe. And again, I think one of the lovely things about this story is to remember that in the 16th century, um, the unfamiliar was actually quite proximate, that there were places in Lithuania and, and, and Scandinavia and, and uh, North Africa where actually you know, uh, the things that were unfamiliar to Europe were, were really quite close at hand. Um, but Damiao falls in love with um, with Sami or, or Lapish culture, as they called it at the time, um, and decides to write uh, a defence of the Lapish people who um, uh, the, the Magnus brothers and Damiao feel are being predated upon by the southern Scandinavians um, and their, their culture being eradicated. So um, Damiel writes a, a kind of a, a plea for uh, understanding of them and and um, uh, and an account of of some of their customs, and he joins to this uh, an account um, as, as sort of giving back to the Magnus brothers for what they've given him an account of Ethiopian culture uh, from some of the Ethiopian emissaries that he met in Lisbon who were sent. Um, 
uh, to Portugal with a view to forming an anti-Islamic alliance. Um, so this is one of the, you know, one of the reasons behind Portuguese exploration. You know, we nowadays think back about um, uh, trade. You know, what becomes important is, is trade, and and perhaps you know the, the, uh, we tell ourselves a story about kind of um, altruistic quests for knowledge. But actually, a lot of what drove the Portuguese exploration was the desire to find the kingdom of Prester John. Um, it was believed that there was somewhere a, an immensely powerful uh, kingdom ruled over by a Christian king. Um, and it was believed that um, if this kingdom could be found uh, and uh, they would have a miraculous ally against uh, the forces of Islam, with whom for hundreds of years during the Crusades and with the rise of the Ottoman Empire, the Ottomans conquest of, of Constantinople and their encroachment upon Budapest and things like that. And, um, you know, that this uh, the kingdom of Prester John would provide this kind of miraculous ally. Um, so uh, they, when Ethiopia was discovered, it, they found uh, an unknown, a lost kingdom of Christians and thought that they might have found the kingdom of Prester John. And so there was a lot of um, commerce between uh, Europe and especially Portugal and, and Ethiopia in the 16th century. And, and Damiao, um, with his usual kind of magpie-like fascination, uh, took the trouble to, to record everything he could about Ethiopian culture. So he produces this, one of his, his sorry, his first um, publication is this sort of strange blend of a, a description of Sami Lapish culture and a description of Ethiopian culture, which, you know, um, seem uh, poles apart. But and yet I, I think are, are nicely symbolic of Damiao's kind of omnivorous fascination with the world. Yes. Um, in parallel to Damiao finding out about Ethiopia and the Laps and that um, delightful reaching out to other cultures, we have the Portuguese blasting their way into the Indian Ocean and to trade. Um, in the most staggering way. Um, we won't go into it, but you talk about um, it happening in West Africa uh, and a technique that they're, do they're using is um, winning the trust of the locals um, through trading and then training guns on the marketplace for so-called protection. So they achieve power as merchants, which is then developed into political power. You describe this very well. And it's as the Portuguese are expanding in this savage way in, 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 uh, that the other character in your story emerges, not as a delightful poet, but as something quite different. So tell us about Camões. So yes, Camões is a, is a fascinating character. Uh, he's the Portuguese national poet and, and uh, sort of like Shakespeare, he's a bit of a shadowy figure in the sense that not a vast amount is known about his life. You have to piece together the clues from, you know, little bits here and there. Um, and it's in some some ways a surprise that he becomes uh, this national figure uh, because he leads a rather kind of vagabond existence um, knocking about as a, a kind of minor a, a very minor uh, figure within the Portuguese imperial um, imperial endeavor but he's 
you know he's there to to witness it all and um eventually he he returns to portugal having written the luciads his great epic poem about vasco da gama's um voyage to 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 india in 1497 to 8 um and essentially the task that he's set himself is to solve a rather rather difficult problem which is that um Europe's entry um, into the Indian Ocean uh, milieu brought them face to face with cultures that in many ways were immensely more sophisticated, richer um, and, uh, you know, older uh, than their own. And so constructing a narrative of European heroism in the face of this was was truly a kind of puzzle that needed to be solved. Um, because in, in many ways, um, as Damiao spotted in his account of it, uh, they were you know, this was not a, a simple case as as Europeans felt it was uh, in the New World of encountering a kind of naive uh, people who who needed European uh, technologies and who could easily be dominated by European technologies, uh, but rather um, people who had their own, uh, you know, ancient and immensely sophisticated. Uh, political and bureaucratic and artistic and military cultures. And so, you know, Camoys's uh, challenge, and, and this to a certain extent is, is about the, the emergence of a certain kind of Eurocentrism, is to tell a story uh, where these this kind of Portuguese um, infiltration of this world um, and, uh, you know, emergence into dominance in this world, often through acts of kind of trickery, as you say, uh, reaching out with the hand of friendship, establishing themselves, and then, um, you know, and, and, and then uh, seeking to, to kind of subvert local powers or playing uh, local powers off against each other um, in order to uh, allow the Portuguese to come out on top. This rather kind of um, uh, duplicitous and unheroic way in which Portuguese and actually colonial power more generally grows to turn that into a story of European heroism. Um, and it's a, it's a slightly kind of, um, you know, unpromising task in some ways. Um, and, and part of this is about how this, this, um, this proves the solution to the rather also unpromising life of, of Luís de Camões, who is uh, a vagabond uh, involved in constantly kind of involved in brawls and scuffles um, you know, and um, uh, in danger of bankruptcy, being thrown into jail for this, that and the other. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose he uh, finds for himself ultimately the role of being the bard of European heroism. So in a sense, it forms a, a counterpart to Damiao's vision of the world, which is one of kind of openness and, and, and interest in other cultures, that what Camoish offers to put the Portuguese into to Europe is, is, as I say, a kind of rather monolithic vision of European heroism. Camoish is, is, unlike Damiao, Camoish is interested in what he can get out of it. So far as I understand, he's interested in in, in go, when he goes to Goa. He's not interested like the wonderful Portuguese, the Jewish Portuguese doctor you referred to, who's interested in the plants and he's treating um, Muslim people, Muslim women as well. He's he's engaged in a cultural cross cultural shift. 
Whereas Damiao, when he gets to, sorry, Camus, when he gets to Goa, is interested in the girls. Yes, so he's very much a sort of uh, Don Juan figure, or, or would like an aspiring Don Juan figure. In fact, a rather unsuccessful Don Juan figure. And but one of, you know, uh, um, one of the the kind of tragedies of um, Camus's life is his feeling that um, you know he's wounded as a young man, disfigured uh, during a battle in North Africa. Um, he's he's a very unloved figure, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, part of this is, I think, a, a feeling of, of kind of personal rejection by the world. So there's a deeply, um, uh, in some ways, touching, um, although in, in other ways, rather, rather sad story about uh, the ways in which da- uh, in which Camões turns against the world um, or, you know, is, is driven to invent a kind of heroic version of himself as as he invents a heroic version of Europe. Um to, to sell back to itself. So it's a kind of mutual act of self-invention. Mm. But you're absolutely right. So there are lots of other figures, Garcia uh, de Orta, the, the Jewish-Portuguese doctor who writes this uh, one on the simples, uh, you know, on absorbing all of this hugely cosmopolitan environment that he finds in Goa, all of the Persian um, learning and Indian learning and Arabic learning that's with which Southern India is, is awash. Um, so there are people who are very open to this, but Kamosh um, himself in writing his epic performs this kind of vanishing act uh, in which um, the, the Indian cultures and, and Chinese cultures and, and things that um, and, and, and Vietnamese cultures with which he comes in contact sort of disappear and are replaced simply with a, a, a kind of uniform account of European heroism. European heroism very much wearing this neoclassical guise which demonstrates Europe to be the heir of Greek and Roman culture um, and which makes an argument um, that you know, for, for, for European imperialism uh, by uh, painting um, European cultures and, and Portuguese culture uh, specifically as the heir to the kind of Roman Empire and so on and so forth. And so it's this, um, it's the burgeoning of the aesthetic of uh, of colonialism, which would have its own kind of very neo-colonial air. Uh, you go lots of these um, Spanish and Portuguese towns around the world are filled with 17th century neo-colonial buildings. And we so many, you know, so much so that and um, sorry, neo or neoclassical buildings, so much so that we, you know, we might almost lose track of quite how odd and th- odd a thing it is to do to go off uh, to Peru or um, uh, uh, Goa or, or Macau and build uh, a Roman building. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I think uh, bearing in mind the argument, the visual argument that was being made by that, and that's very much the same argument that's being made in some ways by, by Camoges' poem, The Luciades. Uh- you present it as a response to the globalization, if you like, and exoticism of the discovery that there's a, uh, a call and for local and austere attitudes, um, as if the Reformation itself is an, a reaction to the European encounter with the East, where they're, they're finding um, things that they have their own version of, like abstinence, um, fasting, uh, and even um, Christianity in St. Thomas. Um, But they, rather than embracing those 
what could be regarded as aspects of themselves, they say, well, this is not the proper way to do it and retreat back into their own bunker, um, which is an interesting uh, look at the Renaissance through that discovery I mean, of, the, of the Reformation. Um, so if then um, we, we think of the Lusiad, Camoish's epic poem, coming at a time when the European worldview is profoundly threatened um, and the imperial mission is defined as one of domination and exploitation. Um, so we have these divergent worldviews. Let's now come back to your title, History of Water, an account of a murder and an, an epic and two visions of global history. I think we can see what the epic is. I think our listeners know what the epic is. That's uh, Camoish's epic poem, which becomes such a huge European hit um, and still is there in Penguin Classic. Um, what about the murder? What's that about? Yes, so... Um... I suppose to my great good fortune as a storyteller um, and his uh, rather misfortune as a person, uh, Damiao uh, dies in a uh, rather mysterious um, and rather grisly way. Uh, and so part of the structure of the book is as a murder mystery, um, because I think, you know, murder mysteries allow us uh, a local focus to try and understand an age. Um, a lot of the, the clues to his murder are things that help us to understand the things that were going on at the time. Um, and I won't give too much of it away since um, hopefully it will be part of what draws readers through through the book. Uh, but in the course of, of trying to find out what happens on the night um, of his death, um, we're led through various... Um, uh, connections that he has uh, through uh, his early life and, and various um, transgressions that may have turned people against Damiao, various people he knew. He was, um, you know, he, he was a sort of um, a Zelig or a Forrest Gump figure in some ways, and that he seems to have been just magically present at all sorts of um, key moments of European history, familiar with Luther and Melanchthon and Erasmus and Vesalius, um, uh, but also very familiar with the founders of the Jesuit order. Um, so Ignatius Loyola um, and, and, and his cadre. Um, and at, in the course of kind of surveying Damiao's life to try and try and um, figure out what happened on the, the night of his death, I suppose it, it leads us to think more generally about the ways in which murder often adumbrates the culture of an age uh, of what makes someone uh, a target for murder, what, what it is about them that means that other people are uncomfortable with them going on living in the world, what it is that they represent. Um, so, yes, the, the, the book opens uh, with uh, the murder scene. Um, uh, with various conflicting testimonies about um, Damiao's uh, death, um, and then uh, takes a very long kind of loop through his life, looking for clues as to, to why um, he might have died in that particular way and, and who, might, who else might have been involved in it. As you imply, we perhaps shouldn't give away the details of the murder because a reader will want to find that out for themselves. But um, the conclusion, you say the, the victim represented such a threat 
to a way of living in the world that things could not go on with them, breathing freely in it. It is, in the end, a conspiracy to hide the world, which is a, it's a fascinating uh, conclusion to bring up. And when you think how, then, how dominant then the resulting Portuguese view of the world was as it then moved through Spanish and certainly British imperial attitudes. Um, nonetheless, there are other ways in which Damiao's uh, sense of curiosity lived on. You make a fascinating connection to both Montaigne and Hatlet. Would you yep. just bring those in before we close? Yeah, absolutely. So, as I say, it, obviously, um, a lot of the, the history of what was to come is a rather depressing history of Eurocentrism and and, and um, uh, a lack of a real interest in the world which they encountered in the, the early fifteenth, uh, sorry, the early sixteenth century. Um, but there are there were exceptions to this, um, and of course, uh, as you say, one of the wonderful exceptions in this regard, and um, a, a wonderful connection, um, is with uh, Michel de Montaigne, uh, who, in some senses, inaugurates the idea of cultural relativism uh, within European thought. The idea that um, the fact that other people do things differently may suggest to us that the way we do things is not necessarily the only way things can be done. And in fact, that there's nothing necessarily superior um, or natural or obvious about our ways of interacting sexually, of eating, of dressing, of thinking about animals uh, and, and all of these things. And uh, Montaigne and Damien never knew each other, but they were very much kindred spirits um, in, in that regard. Um, and uh, in fact, um, Montaigne uh, considered uh, the Portuguese historian Geronimo Osorio to be the greatest historian of the age, not knowing uh, that the Latin translation um, uh, uh, Geronimo Osorio's uh, uh, history of uh, the deeds of King Emmanuel was actually just a Latin translation of, of Damiao's history uh, of the period. So there is this kind of um, this connection between Damiao, um, despite the fact that his his way of thinking doesn't go on to be the dominant way of thinking, um, or at least for a very long time, uh, that there's a sort of long, uh, a long dormancy before, I think, before in the 20th century, in, in the aftermath of you know the world wars and and the holocaust and all of the terrible things that um european cultural supremacy eventually led to uh, a massive reinvest you know a, a massive rethinking about you know that this idea of cultural superiority uh, eventually brings this idea of um, uh, cultural relativism and and thinkers like Montaigne to, to the fore, but you know, there's a long dormancy between the early 16th century and, and, and the current period. And also, as you say, um, Hackett, um, the, the you know uh, the, the accounts of um, uh, European encounters with with other places in the world, um, which Hackett got. Uh, a lot of them from uh, Giovanni Battista Ramuzio, uh, his Navigazione in Viaggi, which is the great um, first uh, first collection of European um, voyage accounts. Uh, and uh, Ramuzio, in turn, uh, got many of his uh, accounts that he included in this uh, from Damiao, uh, who uh, was... Uh, 
possibly leaking them out of uh, the, the Torre de Tombo archive um, uh, in, in ways that he shouldn't have been. So, uh, as you say, there is a kind of redemption. Uh, it's, a very, it's a redemption that's a very long time coming. It's a long, it's a long time uh, yeah. coming. But I, but I love that sense that, uh, albeit a 200-year remove, somewhere there's the spider of Damio in his tower spinning a web, which does actually... Um, find it's uh, mixing the metaphor, it's audience. Um, yeah. And now what about History of Water, which is, after all, the title of the book? Yeah. So, uh, again, it, it's intentionally a kind of riddling poetic provocation. There's lots of ways in which water features centrally in the book, and I won't list them all here, but, you know, there's a lot of voyaging and ship uh, uh, shipwrecks um, and... Um, the, the conception of of uh, of water as a musical thing by Damiens is another example of his kind of infinite openness uh, that he formulates an idea of of the the polyphony of of water as it flows over each other. But I suppose part of the idea is that, of course, um, the idea of a of a history of water is a non sequitur. It's, it's a it's a paradox. It can, it can't exist. You can't write a history of water because water is not different in different places and times, and it, it's not easily dividable into locations. And one of the ways in which um, we tell stories um, that keep us at the center of them is this, you know, this way of dividing up regions and periods um, and creating structures for history, which kind of relentlessly and ineluctably make history the story of us, right? Um, the, the story of, um, uh, of when this happened to us or, you know, of when our um, little area of the world um, be became prominent or, or whatever it was. And so, um, you know, the idea of, uh, of a, a history of water is a, is a kind of a, a provocation reminding us that actually the world can't really be divided. The world and time and history can't really be divided up in those ways. And if one is to, to look at it in a slightly more different, more Damiao-like, more polyphonic way, um, that history takes on a, a quite a different aspect um, uh, and tells a quite a different story. Well, I think that that does come out in this wonderful book, the sense of the shape-shifting of discovery and of re responses to discovery and the opening up of the world. It's, it's a joy, this book. Um, so with that, I think we should bring, come to a close. And thank you, Edward, for joining me. The book is not long. It's under 300 pages. Um, that's not including the notes, which are absolutely fantastic. But it's, all, it's packed with amazing stories, brilliantly researched. Um, and the stories set, are set alongside one another in such a way that we can't help but consider our own world. It illuminates how we got here, who we are. It's a wonderful interesting book so thank you very much indeed uh edward wilson lee's history of water available at 25 pounds ring us at the shop email order it online it's a deeply interesting book and it will open wonders to you and there are signed copies thank you edward thank you for having me on johnny <laughs>